Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It's an honor and delight to be here with Professor David Nirenberg, who is Dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and the Deborah R. and Edgar D. Genota Distinguished Service Professor of Social Thought, Medieval History, Fundamentals, Middle East Studies, Romance Languages, and Literature um, at the college. He is the author of several books, including Communities of Violence, Persecution of Minorities in the Middle Ages, and Anti-Judaism, The Western Tradition, which won the Waldo Emerson Award for its contribution to the history of ideas. He's currently working in collaboration with mathematician Ricardo Nierberg on a philosophical history of, not, of number and knowledge, exploring both the powers and the limits of the sciences and the humanities. Thank you so much for taking time to talk. It's a real pleasure, Rabbi Ankowitz. So to jump right in here, um, how, much, how much is anti-Semitism a unique problem that's different from other forms of racism and xenophobia? Wow, um, that's a, it's a tough question. It's a question I think, you know, one hears a lot and I really don't think it's a good business to be in kind of comparative, uh, comparative xenophobia, comparative racism. Uh, all, there are many terrible forms of xenophobia. Uh, well, I'll say about anti-Semitism or what I often call anti-Judaism that I find to be uh, particularly interesting is that it's kind of at the basis of lots of other ways of thinking. Uh, lots of other forms of xenophobia. Uh, if over time people have imagined Muslims as Jews and attacked them as Jews, which they have, if over time people have imagined many other outgroups as Jews and attacked them as Jews, it's because anti-Judaism is at the kind of foundation of a lot of the systems of thought we have available. So through Christianity, through Islam, thinking about Judaism as something that you need to overcome became a really a foundational aspect of how a lot of the world thinks. And that means that even when a problem isn't really about the Jews, say uh, Muslim immigration in Poland today, why does that become a problem of anti-Semitism? Why does that become a problem about George Soros? Because anti-Judaism can serve as a foundation to animate other forms of hatred too. And that's quite special, that's quite unique, that anti-Judaism has become so separable from Jews themselves and can be applied to so many different aspects of the world. Very powerful. So do you believe there's a difference between the ways people with anti-Semitic views see what Judaism represents and perceptions of individual Jews? I do. In fact, I think there, there can be an enormous disconnect. In fact, I think anti-Judaism doesn't even need to have any real Jews around in order to work. Lots of societies with no living Jews in them think about their society in terms of Judaism. So if you think about a play like The Merchant of Venice, right, in which Shakespeare is using Shylock to think about his own society and creating a really powerful figure 
to an uh, anti-Semitic figure, right? There haven't been any Jews living in Shakespeare's England for hundreds of years, and there won't be for generations more. That doesn't make anti-Judaism less powerful. You don't need real Jews. But what's really interesting is how um, many people who, who, who have deep anti-Semitic theories today um, don't necessarily um, know many Jews. So if you think about um, the way in which the great replacement theory is being used in the US, uh, that's an idea that the Jews are behind bringing in all the other non-white minorities into the US to destroy the white race. Um, well, you can have those ideas without actually knowing any Jews or particularly hating any Jews, but reacting to the world around you. So uh, I, I, I don't think that, um, that anti-Semites necessarily think about individual Jews in the same way that they think about the world. What they're doing is using anti-Semitic systems of thought to explain the world they live in. Fascinating. So, you know, both philo-Semites and anti-Semites um, often claim that Jews or Judaism is exceptional. And um, I wonder, do you believe, like, is your read of history that Judaism is disproportionately revolutionary in, in various societies, that actually the smallness of the people and yet the greatness of the impact is something abnormal? Um, and, and, and if so, what do we do, uh, how is such data handled uh, sensitively or responsibly? I don't, I mean, I think Judaism is exceptional in the sense that so many societies have put thinking about Judaism at the center of themselves. So the whole Christian world, right, thinks about its ideals in terms of a relationship to Judaism, a relationship of overcoming Judaism, a relationship of taking over Judaism. Um, the whole Muslim world thinks to some degree in terms of its relationship to Judaism, again, because Muhammad claimed to have uh, the true interpretation of the Torah and, and because of more recent historical events as well. So what's exceptional isn't really that um, the Jews are revolutionary, but that people thinking about Judaism have carried out so many revolutions and for example, Marx is a great example. Here's a revolution, the, the Marxist thought is a revolution in, in Europe. And it certainly involves Jews in that Marx thought of capitalism as Jewish, but it's not particularly Jewish in its personnel, even if Marx himself was a Protestant convert from Judaism. Very interesting, very interesting. So as someone whose scholarship mainly focuses on Jewish Christian Muslim relations during the so-called golden age of Spain, what allowed the three faiths to exist in relative harmony in that period? And were there ever any major flare-ups between these three communities that, um, that put that stability at risk? Yeah, it's an interesting question because a lot of people nowadays keep looking to the distant past and saying, well, you know, was there a time when uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity got along better than they do today? Uh, what can we learn from such a time? And, I, and there, certainly there have been such times. The Ottoman Empire was, for example, one such time. And medieval Spain, uh, especially um, under, under Islam, uh, was one such time. But when we say that people got along, what we really mean in, in those places, in the Ottoman Empire and Islamic Spain, uh, is that yes, Muslims, Christians, and Jews coexisted, but they coexisted in a very hierarchical relationship in which uh, one group was always on top. And, and even in that setting um, where the, the, the freedoms of, say, Jews were radically restricted, 
Um, even in such a setting, there were often really violent outbreaks. So uh, throughout, I would say throughout uh, medieval history, there had been periods, in, especially in say Islamic Spain or in the Ottoman Empire, there had been periods of coexistence. They've often been punctuated by moments of violence. Uh, one such moment of violence, which kind of feels familiar today with the, with the COVID moment is the Black Death. Uh, when the Black Death comes to Spain, there are outbreaks of violence, this killing of, of hundreds of Jews, uh, based on the argument that God is punishing Christian Spain for tolerating the killers of Christ, the Jews, amongst, in, in Christian society. And you know, when, when we are sitting here today with COVID, thinking about, well, what does this mean? What's happening? We're watching the infection coming towards as much as uh, Christians in Spain watched the infection come towards them in 1348. Uh, you start to see similar answers. It's not, it's not, it's not that different um, when, say, the Ayatollah in Iran uh, suggests that COVID is a Zionist uh, and American conspiracy. Um, so, so these kinds of ideas are still um, around. And when you think about the amount of time in which uh, in the U.S. we've had a, a very strong coexistence of Muslims, Christians, and Jews with no violence really, uh, or very little violence since roughly um, well, well before the Second World War, those periods, periods like that of about a hundred years of, 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 of coexistence without violence, without eruptions of violence, uh, that's pretty much what you had in, in medieval Spain. So we're not that different from even the very best moments in, in the distant past in terms of what you might call this punctuated equilibrium, uh, where you have long periods in which Jews fit very well into society, punctuated by moments of sharp violence. That, that's a medieval pattern as well. Mm, very interesting. So if, if, as you argue in your interview with The New Yorker earlier this year, that Judaism often represents the unidentifiable other, that, co that communities work together to resist, what are some ways to bring people together and build community free from this type of existential fear of outsiders? I know this is a question a lot of people are thinking about in general these days. Yeah, that's a really hard one, right? Uh, that's where, uh, where you're asking the historian of the distant past to kind of produce actionable intelligence for the present. And I guess I'd say that um, from my point of view, what's interesting is the degree to which the, the great religions uh, and, and the systems of thought that have been born from the great religions, like most Western philosophy, et cetera, uh, have um, used Judaism to think about the other. So how do we overcome that work? How do we take, for example, the negative work that's been done with Judaism within Christianity, within Islam, within idealist philosophy, within Marxism, how do we take that negative work and try find positive potentials? Well, these great religious traditions and the great philosophical traditions also produce plenty of positive uh, potentials for thinking about Judaism. Um, so for every negative one, there is a positive one. And similarly in the past, for every negative episode or demonization of the Jews, there's also been, I think you use the word philo-Semitic, there've also been kind of positive depictions. So what I think what we need to do is, is constantly stress the fact that it's up to us to decide which aspects of these traditions we put to work. There's plenty of people out there working really hard to put the negative potentials to work lots of propaganda, lots of nationalism, lots of religious agitation, working to put 
the negative to work. But the same can be said for the positive. We can also put the positive stories about the place of Judaism at the origins of Islam, uh, or the place of Judaism in the origins of Christianity, etc., to work in our present. The question is, uh, how do we do that? Uh, what, what energy, what, what um, power is put behind doing that? And, and is that critical power commensurate to the power being put to negative work. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not an easy task, and I don't know that anyone has made themselves the champions of this, of this work, but I think it's the kind of work that people of good faith throughout the world can carry out. Wonderful, okay, so just one last question for you today, because uh, we value your time so much. Um, what would you identify as the three most influential Jewish ideas that ideologies were developed in opposition to um, uh, throughout history. And perhaps you can pick one of the three and just flesh it out a little bit as to how monumental um, and central that Jewish ideology was in, in developing a counter ideology. Wow. Well, I can't do three. Three is, is very Trinitarian. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna do just one. Okay. Um, and I hadn't, you know, this, this question comes out of the blue, uh, and it's a really, really hard and interesting question. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I, let, let me put some out there, and then I'll focus on one. So the idea that God has a people that is particularly that God's people, the chosen people, um, now, you might say that that's a Jewish idea. Actually, it's not a Jewish idea. It's a, it was common in the very ancient world that there were, the gods were a family and each god had his inheritance and uh, the people that were that god's chosen people. Deuteronomy actually pre, uh, pre preserves one of those um, ancient statements. Um, but this idea of chosen people has often been uh, affiliated with God, uh, with the Jews. Uh, and one kind of sub part of that is the idea of Abraham's seed, the idea that chosenness follows through lineage. And you see all kinds of people claiming that, um, you know, Muhammad is descended from the same seed. Jesus is descended from the same seed. The black Hebrew Israelites in Jersey City uh, are, make, make similar arguments. Um, the Mormons make similar arguments. So, so that's, those are ideas that have driven religion throughout the world. But one, I think the one I would focus on as, as most important is the idea uh, in the Hebrew Bible that's constantly critiquing the Israelites themselves. That is, the Hebrew Bible is constantly saying, this is how you should worship me, uh, you, but you aren't worshiping me right. You're, you're worshiping me with your mouths, but not with your hearts. It, this kind of constant self-critique that the Hebrew scriptures set up about the Hebrew people, about the Israelites. That notion of, um, we've been called and we're not getting it right. That idea has driven the formation of new religions over and over again. It does so in the Psalms, right? God chooses the tribe of Judah because this other tribe doesn't worship him right, uh, that kind of sectarian process. It's the same logic with which Christianity said, no, we have it right, you the Jews have it wrong. It's the same sectarian logic with which um, Islam said, no, you Christians have it wrong, you Jews have it wrong, we have it right. But behind all of what I'm calling a sectarian logic, meaning this energy for forming new religions and pushing aside the old one, is this self-critical idea that I'm not quite 
good enough. I'm not getting it right. I've been called. I'm not quite getting it right. Self-critique. And I say that that self-critique uh, for good and for ill is one of the most important uh, kind of legacies of the Hebrew scripture. And I might associate it uh, with, with Judaism in general. Fascinating. We're very grateful for your time, friends. Be sure to read Anti-Judaism, the Western Tradition, among Professor Nimberg's other uh, fascinating books. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. It was a great pleasure.